calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is of gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. The rediscovery of India and the implications for investors. That's the topic we'll be discussing today on this episode of the Take 15 series. Hi, I'm John Bowman with CFA Institute, and I'm joined today by Lord Magnad Desai, Professor Emeritus at the London School of Economics and an independent board member at Alara Securities. Lord Desai, thanks for being here. Thank you. Maybe we can start with this journey that you've had on rediscovering India. What have been some of the key findings in this 500-year history? Well, I... I've developed the idea that uh, India is an old society, an old culture, but it's a very new nation. Uh, idea that India is, as a nation, was born only in the late 19th century. Innocence is a quite an unusual one because all nationalist movement have to pretend that that nation is, uh, you know, very old vintage. It's been always there, and so on. My my idea is that. Partly it was British rule and partly British domination in Europe which gave India a single foreign ruler, which was an accident. Southeast Asia had multiple foreign rulers, British in Malaysia, Dutch in Indonesia, the Spanish in Philippines. But India had just the British because the British beat the French. Now that, that accident gave us a picture of India being a unity, but the borders of India were fixed by the British. There was a Durand line between now Pakistan and Afghanistan. There's a McMahon line between India and Tibet. All these foreign names have fixed India's boundaries. So India's boundaries were not known. Now people resist that, but then I say that so India's story, the narrative of India's nationhood, has to admit to the fact that it was quite possibly could have been many countries like Europe is. But it became a single one because of this accident. And that gave it a unity, a territorial unity and integrity. And a variety of diverse nations are included within India. And more India prospers, the diversity is come out. The new identities get crystallized. They get asserted. But India doesn't have to worry about it. The new India would be at ease with itself and it encouraged diversity, it encouraged variety. It let the different nations flourish within the constitution, within a single Indian framework. And that, I think, is different than the expectations and beliefs of the pioneering generation. Even to very recently, Indians were worried about India breaking up or the foreigners coming in, destroying India and all that. And I'm saying, relax. All that is part. This is now uh, this is now a united uh, country, single constitution. And within that, a variety of uh, flowers can bloom, and India should relax. So contextualize this accident, as you describe it, through the lenses of present-day India. When we think about the economy and the capital markets today, is the government and private enterprise investing in the right industries, in the right sectors? I think that, again, there is a perception problem, that for a long time India had a perception 
that foreign capital was bad, foreign trade was bad, foreign foreign influence were bad, and India to be independent had to be self-sufficient, so on. And I think by 1991 that that model had had, had bust, and since 1991 India is uh, going much more open. There is still a reluctance. There is still not the open-hearted acceptance. There is still not the idea that India has been a success story of liberalization. People always say, oh, there is poverty, there is inequality, all that. All those things are there, but they will be overcome only if India goes further along the liberal uh, pathway. So the government is kind of in two minds. On one hand, it would like to further the liberal reform. On the other side, they have been told, no, 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 you know, the markets are bad, governments are good, spend a lot of money, you know, help, you know, subsidize petrol, subsidize food, subsidize this. So that is that, that sort of tension, let's put it that way. Uh, and that's all right, provided the tension doesn't lead to government reversing liberal reform or doing something which will harm the economy. The reform is generating the revenue which the do-gooders can spend. Well, that's all right. They're not spending it wisely, but even that is all right. Provided the do-gooders don't stop the liberal reform or reverse liberal reform. And that tension is still there in India. Uh, because the Congress Party by and large thinks of itself as not in favor of globalization, despite having done it. When you talk about this liberal reform and the importance to continue the progress, what role might its neighbors, particularly its big neighbor in the East, China, and its neighbors in the West, the Middle East, Africa, Europe, play in that process? I think China is very good as a, a competitor, something to emulate, something to try and do better than, uh, you know, either be in R&D or in technical education or whatever it is. Indians have to know, well, China is doing something, what, what are we doing? And that kind of gives a, a little edge to it because everybody thinks China is all the government doing it. And so if the government thinks it is going to improve India, but why is it doing the good things? So that's one And I think uh, the Western, the Western uh, neighbors as well have been quite supportive. I mean, for a long time they, they had doubts about India, so they're quite supportive. And uh, right now they are in trouble. Uh, so what really needs to happen is that institutions of global governance have to admit uh, India-China is a much bigger role uh, because uh, Asian countries in general have a much bigger role because you know these are the creditor countries now. Those are the debtor countries. And the debtors have to let the creditors run the, run the bank, as it were. And that, that tension will continue. But America has been very supportive. Again, which is something India doesn't want to really admit, but America is very supportive. And the nuclear supply agreement was really about America-India partnership. Uh, and that is, that is a success story of Manmohan Singh. So, so getting a bit more specific, uh, Sensex, the rupee have all mm. depreciated. Uh, we've had a very volatile inflation environment. What is your outlook for 2012 and beyond for the Indian economy? Well, um, Inflation is coming down, but we have to really see it persistently coming down and staying down. Food price inflation, yes, but wholesale price index, still 9%. If it comes down below 5%, that will believe. The deficit situation is very bad. The deficit outcome is going to be 5.5%, more than 5.5%, compared to 45 which was uh, predicted. 
And it looks like it will not come under control during 2012-13. So the short-term outlook is somewhat, somewhat mixed right now. If inflation comes down and interest rates come down from the Reserve Bank of India, there will be a little bit further uh, fillip to the economy. Government just has to get its spending into some kind of control because there are there are items in the waiting list like food security, which are going to be enormously uh, big uh, ticket items on public spending. So they have to cut somewhere else if they're going to accommodate the big programs. And that sense of urgency is required in the government to get the economy, the confidence of moving on. So as we close, uh, and while I've got you here, uh, clearly you've talked a bit about the real crisis being one of parties, government parties, not truly committed to fiscal discipline. Uh, any comments on the euro and the future of the euro and where you see that going? Well, the euro, uh, if the euro stays as it is, Eurozone United, the austerity that faces the Eurozone for the next 10 years will mean that the Eurozone will be a no-growth territory. Uh, if it breaks up into only two, then we have a little bit of shock. But Europe may still be able to manage with a, with a southern uh, bit, which is the weaker euro, northern bit is stronger euro, and the southern bit may get a bit of depreciation uh, as a result of that. That is a little bit worse for Norway. If one of them exits, say Greece, and then the contagion effect hits Portugal, Spain, then the illiquidity in the markets and the, and the shock to the bank capital, uh, bank portfolios, is going to be enormous. And one just has to wish that uh, zero growth is the best option right now, uh, which, is a, which is sort of a tragedy, but I think one, one cannot do better than that. Well, Lord Desai, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. And thank you for joining this episode of the Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.